Hello and welcome to the IDO podcast. My name is Dryden and I'm your host. On today's episode, I was joined by my classmate Sarah Sandhu. And Sarah is doing her master's degree in interdisciplinary humanities at Trinity Western University. Sarah is specialized in the field of history and she joined me today to talk about her research, which mainly concerns post-colonialism and gender studies in the context of India. It was a very interesting conversation, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are only the views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Trinity Western University or the Trinity Western University Graduate Student Association. All right, hello everyone. Uh, this is Dryden. I'm the host of the IDO podcast, and uh, joining me here is my classmate, uh, Sarah Santu. Sarah, do you want to take a minute to just kind of introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, thank you for introducing me, Dryden. Um, hi everyone. Um, I'm Sarah, and I'm pursuing my master's in interdisciplinary humanities at Trinity. Um, I'm from India, and I've traveled quite a while to be studying here um and um yeah yeah so talk a little bit about that sarah how did you end up uh over in this neck of the woods from india and how did that journey kind of uh form and take place so um i did my undergrad in history in the capital of india new delhi um in a very christian institution and um I didn't know what were the next steps for me. I wasn't sure if I wanted to pursue history particularly. I wanted to do something more um, fluid. And so I did apply to UBC at first. And I tried to get into the TESOL program, which I did. Um, but my just, visa just didn't get it, through. Just putting it out there. You, you did get in there as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just did. I, I did yeah. achieve that. Yeah. Um, uh, but then my visa didn't get through. So that was, I was bummed out by that. Yeah. But um, I decided to take a trip to this part of Canada then. Um, And then I applied to universities while I was here. I visited Trinity and I also visited a bunch of other universities. Um, And the thing that I liked the most about Trinity was that they didn't hand me a map and ask me to figure things out on my own. Yeah. So everywhere else that I went, they were like, this is a map of our campus and you can figure it out by looking at this map. And I was like, oh no. Um, at Trinity, it felt so homely and like there were people ready to like listen and um, answer what I, like, all the questions I had about studies in Canada, about my options, about what I was looking for. And um, then we narrowed down on interdisciplinary humanities, which was um, as I was looking for a more broader kind of stream of study. Yeah. Right. Cool. So, um, like you said, you are in the MAIH program, Masters of Interdisciplinary Humanities, um, but you are, you are specialized in history, is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you're very enthusiastic about that. So, uh, how, how did your interest in history develop? What did, is that something that has always been with you, or did that develop in your undergrad, or what did that look like? Um, I was always interested in English. So in India, we studied Shakespeare religiously um, and we studied um, Keats and all of that. It was like a big part of our education. 
But along with that, we had word history that went along with that literature. And there was this one class that I remember, which was and I was in grade three and we had this history lesson where we were studying about um, how the Aryans invaded India. Okay. And what we did was we didn't stay in class, but we went outside to the basketball court. And um, everyone whose name started with A were the Aryans. And we, ha- we got to just play. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it wasn't like a war kind of situation, yeah. but we just, we just got to like, team A and team B and we just got to play games. And that's how we understood our history lesson. Mm. And um, that's when I kind of started liking history. And I was like, you know what, this is interesting. It's like a story that you can act out. And I was into theater, so it was all good from mm. then on. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, you're, so what was the experience in shifting between, um, like shifting between the Indian and the Canadian academic worlds? Was was coming to North America something you always wanted to do, or was that kind of a spur of the moment decision, or what did that look like? Yeah, um, that's a funny story actually. Um, so a lot of <laughs> a lot of. Punjabis like myself, they, they kind of, they call, they call Canada mini Punjab. Okay. Which is like proportion and size wise, that's like a total yeah, Punjab yeah. little province in India and Canada is like one of the biggest countries. Um, and so a lot of my friends and a lot of uh, my relatives kind of moved here and we would make fun of them. Like, why do you mm. want to leave India? Um, and, you know, maybe start a life somewhere else. But um, then I found myself actually thinking about it just because a lot of my friends had moved and I was, um, they were like, you, you'd love it here. It would be the best thing that would happen to you. Um, and you would get to just um, study things you want to study and explore things that you want to explore without um, having to think about society as much. Because mm. in India, it's a very, what would people say kind of society. Right. So um, then I kind of, uh, I thought I'd just do my master's and, um, kind of figure out from there if I want to stay or if I want to go back and um, what will yeah. be my next plan. So talk a little bit about the, this is something that I have no personal experience with mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, but I, I've heard a little bit about this from, from other foreign students. Uh, talk a little bit about the difference between the Indian and the North American academic worlds. In what way is university in India uh, uh, different from Canada? And, you know, did you experience any sort of culture shock in that area? Oh, yeah. Um, I came in thinking that I would not experience any cultural shock just because Hollywood and Riverdale and all of that. Riverdale. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But then um, it's like a slumdog for India would be Riverdale for Langley. (laughs) Right. Um, But um, so when I came here, I was like, this is going to be fine. But when I started university, I actually got my first paper as a redo. And I was like, wait, what? And as a person who had studied English and, and you had done so much work in my father's an English teacher, I was like, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> this is not right. Um, and there were like minute things that were not considered important in the Indian system, but were considered important in the American, North American system. Um, for example just the structure of an assignment was different in India. So there you would work your way up to the conclusion instead of the North American way was like upfront giving your conclusion in your thesis Mm. statement. 
So that took some time getting used to. Yeah. Um, and then plagiarism is not that big of a deal in India. That That's something that I've heard. Yeah. It's actually because uh, we aren't supposed to put our personal kind of critical thinking, the results of a critical thinking into mm-hmm. assignments. Right. So then it is understood that whatever you're writing is naturally not yours. Right. You're just, you're, you're, repeating what other people have said and what other people have taught you. Absolutely. So no one even considered that to be your own work. So that's why citing was not that big of a deal. Mm. But here you had to critically think, cite, um, Chicago formatting, APA, (laughs) MLA. It was just like... What is is your favorite and least favorite citation style? This is is a very divisive issue amongst grad students. People are very loyal to their citation. I really like Chicago. Just me too. I love Chicago. I very rarely meet other people in Chicago, but I love best friends now. Yeah. What about your least favorite? Um, APA. Yeah. For sure. But I I would say um, that after their update, the seventh edition, I think they're kind of redeeming themselves in a few ways. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let them know that they're they're improving their, their ratings yeah. in your eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So how then, um, like, how do you think then you have, like, grown and developed as a student in having come to Canada? Is that, like, like do you think that you, um, I mean, the answer to this is obvious, but, it, but in what ways do you think you've, like, grown and developed as a student uh, in, in the Canadian or North American academic world that maybe the Indian world wouldn't have allowed for? Yeah, um, well, I've started thinking critically. So I would, I would watch movies and I would just take them as an experience instead of like questioning gender roles, questioning um, classism, casteism. But now when I watch something, if I read something, I'm always questioning things. And um, that actually has helped me when I even read the Bible or when I read uh, or like personal improvement things. Um, just the the practice of critical thinking in everyday life, I think it not only has improved my academic work, but also like my life in totally. a way. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's the goal. I think I think you've just um, I think you've just given a great preview for uh, or, or or a great promotion for uh, the North American academic yeah. world as a whole. I think that would be um, the goal. Is that you know the critical thinking skills that you learn in school, you know, leave the classroom. Yeah. Um, okay. So what, uh, what areas of, um, or no, how should I ask this? So y- you talked a little bit about how, um, a- a- as a student, you first fell in love with history through, uh, learning Indian history. Um, is, is the history of India still kind of your primary, um, interest or in what ways have your interests expanded since, uh, becoming a graduate student? Um, so I knew that I was interested in post-colonialism from okay. the very beginning. Um, and a big portion of that is Indian history. And because mm. that's what I've studied um, all throughout uh, my life, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so with that, I think um, I took an engendered um studies kind of course the first semester that I was at Trinity and um, I figured that um, I may not know everything about feminism mm-hmm. but I sure am, I sure am quite interested in learning and understanding things from that point of view 
right. and not only um as in males and females but like the whole lgbtqia mm. kind of spectrum yeah so i would say my area of study would be um post colonialism with gender studies very interesting so for anyone who's listening who's um not not familiar with these areas how would you this is probably an extremely difficult question but how would you kind of succinctly explain what exactly post colonialism um what exactly post colonialism is and what that looks like in the study of history um how oh, that's that's a very vast question i'm like yes, I, yes, oh no I, I know i do this to all of my guests i ask them to sum up their areas of research and it it freaks people out but um so i would explain post colonialism in a um it would be if you divided the world in the political north not political but the global north and the global mm-hmm. south um and you kept developed nations such as um north america and parts of europe um and the countries that they conquered as the global south okay um and all countries that they conquered were not left they did not leave them in the same way so they entered india about in 1536 and they left india in 1947 and that's like a huge amount of time where they could influence um society culture economics um religion um and, and like and when you say they just to clarify you're talking about the british right i'm talking about uh, yeah the british in india but then on the whole like just colonialists just right okay yes i um, mean i think the biggest criticism of post colonialism is that it's not over Right. just cuz north america is still under european rule totally yeah um and so that's the problem with the term post colonialism but yeah. i studied yeah post colonialism <laughs> implies that it's over but yeah yeah but then i studied in terms of a nation where it is over after 1947 that's india so okay. yeah and feminism do you want me to explain that please do yes um I mean, that's think, like a controversial topic totally and and i think actually like i think people have a good idea of what exactly feminism means yeah. but um for you coming from the indian context um it, in what ways um it in what i don't want to make any assumptions here but in what ways is feminism something that you kind of have been introduced to since coming mm-hmm. to north america or was or it, to what extent was it something that you were exposed to still as a student in india well throughout my undergrad um i was in the capital of india that's new delhi mm-hmm. um and that's i don't want to call it the rape capital but it is known as that okay in some areas mm-hmm. um and so for the 3 years of my undergrad because undergrad is 3 years in india um i carried a, a pepper spray and mm-hmm. a keys like a knuckle kind of thing wherever i went at whatever time i went um and it became like a huge part of my life um and all women actually and i see my brother who doesn't have to live with that constant kind of stress mm-hmm. of that he's going to be attacked and he needs to like save himself Mm-hmm. He can be walking um at, on the road at 2 a.m. and mm-hmm. he won't have this like additional mental load that's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um but a woman has to carry that mental load that mm-hmm. is exhausting um in every way possible because you keep after looking over your shoulder, you keep after looking down like down at your feet, um everywhere. Like even now 
I know that I don't have to check my car every time I get in, but before I get into the driver's seat, I always check okay. the diggy and uh, the back seats and I check if no one's there. Mm. So it was, I mean, female empowerment and living with such fear is a big issue mm-hmm. um, for women. And um, they don't deserve to live like that. They deserve to live um, free of such danger and fear. I mean, I'm not saying that men don't have to live. I mean, there are so many instances where men have been violated um, sexually, but um, it's not as prevalent as it is with women. Absolutely. So to what extent then is there a feminist movement in India? Again, I know that that's probably a huge question, but um, you know, I, I, I can only imagine that there's countless other women like you in India that are, that are growing very tired of living under that weight and under that sort of oppression and fear. Um, so to, to what extent is there a um, feminist movement in India? Are, are those ideas out there in the academic world in India? Or you know, what does that look like? Um, so India, it's... It's still evolving because according to our, according to India's caste system and even like just society, um, a woman, a, a daughter is considered, they use the term parayatan, which means someone else's um, money or like just uh, treasure. So that's how daughters are raised as to be someone else's responsibility. Um, and so there are different levels at which NGOs and feminist movements work. Um, some of them are, which are called Pinjator, which means break the locks, break the cages. Mm. Um, that's very active in New Delhi. Um, then there are others which work in the slum areas, just educating women and, um, you know, you know, just um, arming them with their own economic freedom and a way to like, uh, just, earn so that they can live a life like a respectable life um so there are different levels at which it's working and there is a change i'm not saying there's not there isn't a change like um a lot of women the the rate of female infanticide has gone low Mm. so that's a win yeah um and so i think it's a slow kind of change but it would happen over time for sure yeah so I can only imagine that there must have been um, there must have been a tremendous sense of empowerment in um, coming to um, coming to the North American academic world and be and getting to take you know gender studies classes and you know kind of gaining fresh perspective into um, you know the situation that you grew up in and uh, things like that. Um, to what extent then is gender studies something that the um, like, would you be able to take a gender studies class at an Indian university? Is that something that would be facilitated? I haven't heard of any gender studies class. Okay. But um, I know that there would be professors who would be willing to supervise a course if you okay. were to do it as a MPhil or a PhD student. Right. Yeah. So then, again, it must have been quite, um, must have been a little bit of culture shock there and coming to the North American context. Oh, yeah. How, there... Yeah. Um, for undergrad and for your bachelor's and master's, you get like a set timetable of classes that you have to attend. Okay. You don't pick and choose all your classes. And so that was like nerve wracking for me. I was like, oh no, I need to pick these three, two classes that I need to do this <laughs> semester. But yeah. That would be, wow, that's interesting. I've never thought about that. So you, yeah. so if you are, so if you're doing the same degree as someone else, then do you take all the same classes as that person for the whole time? Oh Yeah. 
Oh yeah. Um, apart from a few courses you can select, but that's, and then you're given like a bunch of like, from these five courses, you have to pick two. Interesting. And then, so it's in, not. Yeah. In a way, I feel like that would, I feel like a lot of students here would almost embrace that if someone was just willing to tell them exactly what courses they needed. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing all that, Sarah. Uh, I think uh, with that in mind, I think you've set us up well to kind of move into the um, second kind of portion of our discussion, uh, which is more focused on, you know, what you're interested in, uh, your current research. I know before we started recording here, we were talking about how you and I are both working on major papers right now. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you talk a little bit about your major paper and where your research or what your research is in and where it's kind of taken you? Um my research is about um, the symbolism of women as just reproductive agents throughout colonial history, spe okay. specifically India. Yeah. yeah. And um, I'm looking at two case studies, which is one of them is colonial, which is um, the abolition of the practice called sati, which is a mm. widow burning practice that was um, a very strong part of Indian culture pre-colonialism and the other is a post-colonial um incident i wouldn't say incident but like a thing that happened was the partition of india mm -hmm. in 1947 which it was really sad and really bad for um on both sides for both people on like both sides of the community but What's little known about that is the symbolic violence against women that happened mm -hmm. during that time. So why, for any of our listeners who maybe are unfamiliar, why don't you just quickly sum up what the, I mean, again, not something you can quickly sum up, but I just give a quick su summary of what exactly the partition of India looked like and how and why it happened. Ooh, how and why? Um, I know those are the big questions. Just yeah. Um, the like entire thesis is, but okay. Oh, totally. um, yeah. um, so the partition of India was basically because the religious divide in India okay. um, between the Hindus and Muslims. Um, and, the, and so the Muslims started pushing for their own uh, kind of nation that would be run on Islamic law. Mm. And they wanted to detach from India, take the majority areas and detach. Um, and so the there were two political parties. The Congress didn't want that. But um, actually, the Britishers were in a hurry to leave because after the Second World War, they didn't have money. And so they didn't have the resources to run a, co a colony like that. Mm. Um, and they were, and there was a lot of violence and like unrest that was occurring. So they needed resources in terms of army to, to, to handle that, even to profit from their colony. So what they did, they kind of seceded to here, take your, take your partition. We're drawing a boundary and we're leaving. So that's how the partition happened, where India was broken into um, Pakistan and India. Mm. Pakistan being for Muslims and India being for a secular nation. They still have uh, Muslims there. Mm -hmm. But um, what happened was during the migration, a lot of families lost their homes. They lost their... Um, relatives, friends, and while they were crossing borders, uh, whoever was left behind was um, 
was raped or you could say uh, kind of stamped with religious symbols and just um, it was a show of authority over land mm. and women are a key element to inheriting land because it's through their womb mm. um, that you kind of assert if their child is pure enough to inherit the land of their father mm. right and so defiling them in the name of the rival community was something that was stamping the rival land with um, the other um, religious symbol. So that's what the partition is about. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. So then your, okay. So your uh, major paper concerns uh, that aspect of things. And then you also mentioned the, um, I don't want to misquote you, but the, the widow burning practice. Yes. Um, it's yeah. called, it's called Sati. It was like an old Hindu practice um, where if a woman's husband died, she would have, she would burn at the pyre with him, mm. uh, burn alive at the pyre with him, correction. Um, and so it was like a, but then it was also rejoicing. So what they would do is they would celebrate her loyalty towards her husband mm. and her chastity and how she's pure to meet her husband. Now, Hindus believe in rebirth. And so they were to die together so that they could be reborn at kind of the same time so that okay. they could meet again um, in their second kind of, or the other life. Um, and so it was important to them that that happened. Uh, that practice was kind of demonized by um, the Britishers when they came. It was not a pleasant practice. I'm not saying that it right. was in any way, but no, you can um, imagine why that would be shocking to someone coming from England. And you know what's surprising? England had witch burn, uh, witches being burnt on fires. That's true. That is true. That's and so it was. They weren't alien to, to it. Yeah, it's something that they had seen. Right. Okay. That but is they very acted like it was new to them. They acted like they'd never seen something like that. Mm. And um, there was this hypocrisy in the way that they treated it. Um, and they used women in a certain way to achieve um, political kind of establishment or like mm. a um, pedestal in India. And that's what I'm kind of studying. Okay. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, so what then, like, how have your, how has your... Um, I don't want to say opinion, but how have your thoughts on these matters kind of evolved since beginning your, since beginning your research? Like how did, how, actually, let me back up. How did you kind of arrive at these topics as the things that you wanted to research and how has your thinking about them kind of evolved since then? Um, so when it comes to colonialism, I was a big believer in how um, India was kind of had their industrial phase under the British and that's how they came up with their modern kind of um, living. But when you, when you read about it and read more about it, it does not match up to the atrocities and exploitation that they did. I mean, in any way, it does not justify the railways or the economy or anything. Um, and so I had to do some reading before I came to that conclusion. Mm. Um, because in comparison to other nations, for example, North America or Africa, India had it pretty good. I mean, a lot of, it didn't have um, heaps of people like just taken away for slavery. I mean, it did have people taken away, but not as much in comparison to Africa. And then the colonialists did leave 
unlike North America. Mm. Um, but then it does not excuse all the actions that they did. Um, anyway, uh, moving forward, how I came to my research is based off of my um, readings, I wanted to do a directed study. And through that, um, I came to the conclusion of I wanted to study how they affected women. Um, they as in the colonizers. And at that time, there was this political movement going on in India against the CAA, which is the Citizenship Amendment Act um, okay. in late kind of 2019. And what is, what is that act all about? Um, that act, it restricts um, refugees who are Muslim. So any refugee from any other religion is allowed to enter India and apply for a permanent residence and further maybe citizenship, except for Muslims. Mm. And so Muslims can go to their country, mm. which is um, problematic because Muslims have their divides um, like Christians. How we talk about the Catholic, Protestant, Methodist, and so on in the same way Muslims have Shias, Sunnis, and um, they do fight amongst themselves. Um, and so you cannot say that, you know what, go to a nation where you will be prosecuted. Mm. And so that was an issue. And it was, they added this to the constitution, which kind of um, hampered the secular aspect of the Indian constitution and the nation. And so what happened, there was all these protests that were happening. And in the middle of that, um, actually at the front lines, there were women women who were leading the protest. Mm -hmm. And this was, I was like, why are women so worked up about this? Mm. Um, there is, like, it's not affecting any of their rights. It's not, um, you know, saying anything about who they are and what they should be right now. Um, but why is it affecting them so much? And after talking to Professor Shelby, um, I came to the realization that they look at the constitution as a source for their liberation. So it did liberate them from the practices like sati. It did liberate them from um, getting married too soon and child marriages. Mm. Um, it also did liberate them from, uh, or it allowed them to wear Western clothes and own a mobile phone, mm. which is difficult for some women in India even now. Mm. And so when they started hampering the liberty and modernity of the constitution, the next step was going to curb women in a corner and kind of poke at them. Mm. So that's why um, women were so um, angry about this. And so that from that, I was like, you know what? Maybe women also had a role to play when the Britishers came in and did the Britishers use them in a way. So that's where I got the idea. So we got the idea. And how long, how long now have you been uh, on this project? <laughs> it's been some time. Yeah. Um, I, all throughout summer, I was supposed to do my um, 610, which is the research course, but oh, then yeah. I started working. Um, and so then we moved it to the fall. And so I'm doing that right now. Okay. But it's been almost a year. So. Yeah. No, these, the, I mean, these are topics that you could sit with, that you could make an entire academic career out of, I'm I sure. Know. I mean, it's so slow. Research is the slowest thing <laughs> out there. I, like we're a generation of like instant gratification for sure um and like research is like the slowest thing right now yeah with obviously being inside yeah 
Yeah. I um I know with my major paper right now, I'm at the stage where I'm thinking I am so close to having this thing done, but I can't make the last section go by any faster. You know what I mean? Like the last section yeah. of the paper takes just as much work as as all the other sections, even though it's the last one that I have to do before it's done. Yeah. So you know, research can be a very it's it, it's a very tedious game sometimes. Um so what's interesting to me is that you talked about how in India you um, did your undergrad at a Christian institution. Um, what is the, so you've, you've talked quite a bit about how there's this um, kind of ongoing uh, tension and divide between the, the Muslim communities and other religious communities in India. What is sort of the place of Christianity in all that? I, again, I, I realize that that's probably a huge question that we don't have time to unpack, but um, what was your experience with being part of a Christian institution? Is Is there kind of like, like I feel like, being in a Christian institution, you would almost feel like you're in this awkward kind of like third party position, kind of looking at all this other uh, tension that's going on. But um, yeah, talk a little bit about what that was like. That's one of actually, that's one of the major um, culture shock moments that I had when I moved mm. here. Okay. Was that here, Christians are considered as conservatives, mm. but in India, they're considered as liberals. Mm. Um, and so they were the ones who kind of introduced modern kind of Western education. Um, and so Christian institutions in India are the ones that are trusted. You're like, you know what, send that kid to a convent or send that kid to a Christian institution to study. And then you'd know that they've learned something worthwhile. And here is like, oh, don't send them to Trinity because <laughs> they will make you Christian. And I'm like, deed done. I'm already Christian. But, um, anyway, um, so their Christian institutions are respected in that manner as they're known as educationists. And um, that, like I said, like sending a kid to a Christian institution means that they would get a worthwhile education. Mm. Um, and so that's the background that I came from. And so getting into these institutions is also difficult. Um, they have like um, cutoff marks where uh, below that grade, they would not let anyone in and stuff mm. like that. Um, and I don't think... In terms of how they are diff like where they fit in in the religious divide, um, they're another minority, but not as big as Muslims. Mm. So they're like the lower end of the minority, um, and so they're not um, seen as that big of a threat. But um, I know of areas where there has been um, there where there have been attacks on churches. Mm and where there are underground churches um, and things like that. Like I know a lot of um, a lot of people who tie a turban, which is a mark of being Sikh, mm -hmm. but they are actually Christians, but they're scared to like cut their hair and mm -hmm. publicly kind of accept it. Because with that, the notion comes of um, accepting this foreign kind of mm -hmm. um, influence. That's, that's kind of where my mind was going to, is I'm thinking, to a certain extent, Christianity in India must be viewed sort of as, as a colonizing force. Yeah. Um, it must, because I'm assuming that it was the British colonization that introduced a lot of um, the Christian influence that is present in India. Um, yeah, but also, I think, now I'm kind of forgetting which disciple it was. <laughs> Was but there are records. Yeah, I think yeah, so. I think I've heard something about this. There are records of him actually reaching the eastern coast of India. Okay. And evangelizing there for a that portion was, of his life. That must have been quite the journey. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm, I mean, from North America, yes, but not from Middle East so much. I guess that's true. Yeah. But I mean, without airplanes and motorboats, I, well, it might right. have been really t- difficult. But um, yeah, so he did kind of evangelize in South India. Mm. Um, so, yeah. so in that way, then Christianity would almost be older than the colonization, obviously significantly Absolutely. older. Than, yeah. yeah. That's very interesting. But um, I actually struggle with that because I am Christian by faith. And, but whenever I study like colonization, it kind of criminalizes missionaries. I'm like, I get what you're saying, but that's not exactly what Christianity is about. Yeah. Um, And I I have to be very particular about how I write that down. For sure. Yeah. No, that is some, I think that is something that every Christian, especially, especially our generation, I think that's something that we're really realizing is, is to what extent our faith is kind of, tied up in the world's forces of colonization and how our faith has been tied up in dominating political forces um throughout you know the history of the world um no it, it's it's very interesting and and there's no you know I'm, I'm sure if jesus was alive today he would have plenty to say about how christianity has been used as a as a colonizing force and you know i know i know the indigenous peoples of canada sometimes have very similar feelings towards Christianity because it was, it was some, it was a tool that was used to assimilate them and to assimilate against their culture. And um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's something that I think definitely our generation is um, really realizing. And um, I, I can only imagine, I mean, it's easy for me to say, cause I'm a white guy from North America. I'm a white Christian guy from North America, right? I've never been on the receiving end of that, but for someone coming from a very different cultural context from, a people group who have been on the receiving end of that colonization, I can imagine there's a lot, um, there's a lot to be unpacked there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's always thought of as um, that missionaries kind of paid off the lower castes to mm. become Christians. And um, I don't like, I know to an extent maybe they did in some areas, mm-hmm. but that's not like why, you do have like a thriving kind of Christian population in India though. It's cause I think people do love God and they do kind of see um, his works are beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably uh, the best place we can possibly end this conversation and we're getting close to our time limit here. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show with me today. This was, this was very interesting and I, I learned a lot about India and about your research. Um, why don't you, why don't I get you to close by answering one question? And this is not at all relevant to anything that we've talked about, but this is one question that I've asked every guest that I've had on the podcast so far. And so I'm not going to exclude you from that. Would you rather, <laughs> are you ready for this? This is quite okay. the question. Would you rather fight 100 duck sized horses or one horse sized duck? Okay, um, wow, that's, you really have to like consider, like evaluate the odds. Um, I think one duck-sized, um, one horse-sized duck. Yeah. See, that's what I say too. I say I would, no matter how big it is, I would rather just fight one thing than a hundred things. Yeah. But and who said I'm alone? Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, yeah, it's, you can tell a lot about a person and the way they think based on how they answer that question. It's been, it's been interesting. Yeah. Can I ask you one question though? 
Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, no one's ever done this. You're the, oh, first, okay. you're the first guest that's ever wanted to ask me a question. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So this is like one of my favorite questions just because I'm a history student. Okay. Um, if you had access to a time machine, okay. which era would you want to travel back to? Oh. And it can be multiple. You, can, you have like unlimited yeah. kind of act, like fuel in your time machine. Um, yeah. And why? Who do you want to meet? Oh, like? wow. Okay. I am. I'm not used to being in this position on the podcast. Um, so, like I said, as a good white North American Christian boy, I would like to go back and see Jesus in action. Um, that would be number one on the list. Um, but then, I would also love to go back. I shouldn't say love because I'm sure this experience would traumatize me, but. I would find it very interesting to observe a Viking raid when the Vikings were raiding in England and France and whatnot. Um, I've just always been really fascinated with, with the Vikings. Um, and I would, I would love to, I would love to, you know, have firsthand experience with that. Um, also, oh geez. No, no, I think honestly, I've always just had like, an obsession just with like the middle ages as a whole. So I would just like to go back, I think to the court of some, you know, medieval King in Europe and just kind of get firsthand experience, like just kind of get firsthand experience of what that was like socially and culturally. And, you know, were they, were they really as, as regal and as grand as we make them out to be in movies and TV shows or, you know, I think, yeah, yeah. No way. Yeah. Those are good answers. Actually, okay. everyone that I've asked, I've asked them like, let's just go back to Israel to see Jesus in action. <laughs> it's like, it's like when you, it's like when you ask, you know, you can have five people over for dinner. Who do you invite? And everyone has to say Jesus because yeah. you know, you're a bad Christian if you don't. Or you could say the Holy Spirit and then you could still have five people. Or you could say the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit and that. Thank you for inviting me, Jaden. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Sarah. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Once again, that was Sarah Suntu, graduate student at Trinity Western University. Thank you very much for tuning into the IDO podcast today. The IDO podcast is an independent production of the Trinity Western University Graduate Student Association. Our theme music for today's episode is Like Clockwork from an artist by the name of Benjamin Kling. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time.